0: Let's go to the Bible. If you have a Bible, why don't you open it up to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. I want to call your attention to a really long passage. It starts in verse 17 and goes down to verse 31. We're going to cover all of it because it is one cohesive passage. You don't need to split it up. The story goes together. So Mark chapter 10. If you're a guest with us, uh, this is what we normally do. Not church conference preaching. This is what we normally do. Read the Bible. We'll read the story. What does it say? We'll just go through so that the sermon is built on the Bible. Even the points will come from the uh, sections that you'll see. A lot of these you'll see before I get there. So that it becomes a bit of a Bible study as we walk through it. If you found Mark chapter 10, why don't you stand and we'll read together God's Word. <clears throat> Mark chapter 10, we'll start in verse 17 and read down to verse 31. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. Let's begin verse 17. <clears throat> And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. Jesus looking at him, he loved him. And he said to him, You lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Well, they were exceedingly astonished. And they said to him, then, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but with God, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house. join me as we pray. Father, I pray that you would awaken hearts to believe. I pray that you would take hold of good men and women, moral men and women, those that have lived moral lives, good lives, successful lives, and have yet not turned to you by faith. Spirit of God, we pray that you would move and We pray that you would move in that capacity and change people. Lord, I pray you would be close to the hurting, that you would comfort those that are in the depths of depression and bring them out by your spirit. God, I pray that you would heal the wounds of abuse. God, I pray that you would strengthen the weak hands here today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Henry VIII was the most infamous ruler that England ever had. The funny thing is, he was not supposed to be king. He had an older brother. Had an older brother named Arthur. His father, Henry VII, named Arthur so that it would bring back the pride of Britons. Even you know who King Arthur is. Arthur married the formidable Spanish princess named Catherine. It was a a marriage that was arranged politically so that England, this emerging empire, would have credibility. Henry VII is trying to build a dynasty, and he needed his son Arthur to help. Well, unfortunately, as a young man, Arthur, soon after being married to Catherine, Arthur died. This is why the English always say, if you're going to have children, you need to have an heir and a spare. Arthur died, and that's how Henry never dreamed he would be king. That's how Henry became king. Through a special dispensation, the Pope allowed Henry to marry Arthur's widow named Catherine. Henry married Catherine, and the two of them started building a life and a dynasty, except for the fact that pretty soon Henry wanted a divorce. In fact, if you go and read his life, Henry will be married six times. Six times. Only three of the wives actually uh, lived through the marriage. He had a propensity of cutting their heads off. He would be named by the Pope the, the defender of the faith because he wrote such a scathing letter to Martin Luther during the Protestant Reformation. The Pope would call Henry the defender of the faith, that is, until the Pope wouldn't let him have his divorce. The Pope wouldn't let him have his divorce. Henry would accidentally and inadvertently found the Anglican Church. And eventually, he would become the great dynastic leader of Great Britain. Build his own dynasty, but completely miss the kingdom of God. Any way you cut it, Henry VIII was a rich Young ruler. He had everything, but missed eternity. Much like the young man in our text. We've come to call this young man the rich young ruler. Actually, that's a composite name. We don't ever hear him called the rich young ruler in the Bible. What we've done is we read the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew tells us he's a young man, And then you read the Gospel of Luke. Luke tells us he is a ruler. And then we get here to Mark. Mark tells us he's a rich man. So we put the three together, the rich young ruler. Mark tells us that he's rich, but in spite of his riches, in spite of his youth, in spite of his position, in spite of his power, his soul is not satisfied. So this story is about him running, running to Jesus and looking for some kind of internal confidence to match the external security. From this sad story, we learn that God, God can't be bought by good deeds and a successful life, but He can be known by the gift of grace found in Christ. Now when this sermon is done, when you walk out of here today, I want you to see that in Christ, God loves us with impossible grace. In Christ. How does God love you? He loves you with impossible grace. Now it's a long story. I told you that on the front end. This story is broken up into three sections. First, you have the event. So verse 17 to verse 22 is the actual event. Rich young ruler and Jesus, they have uh, this conversation. And then after he walks away, you have the lesson. From verse 23 to verse 27, Jesus turns, teaches the, the disciples a lesson. So the event, then the lesson. And then after that, in verse 28 to verse 31, you have Peter speaking up. And that section is called the promise. The event, the lesson, the promise. Let's take those sections, make them our points. Here's the first one. Number one, I want you to see that being good is not good enough. You're being good. Here's the problem if you are one step away from actually going to church and hearing the gospel a lot. and What you think of Christianity is that uh, my life is like a scale, and if I can do more good in life than I do evil, then the good will outweigh the bad, and when I get to heaven, God will see that I did more good than bad, and he's gonna let me in. That's not the gospel. We're gonna see that here in this passage. Let's go to the scene. We'll just follow along. Join me there, verse 17. Verse 17 tells us, and it was, and he was setting out on his journey. Jesus, that is. Where is he going? Jesus is on a journey. He is headed to Jerusalem. He's going there to be crucified and raised from the dead. He's going there to secure redemption. He is on his journey and something unexpected happens. In fact, if you flipped over to Matthew and you saw where Matthew tells the story, Matthew starts it like this, Behold! It's a Greek word, edu. He's saying, whoa, something unusual has happened here. What is it? Verse 17. He was setting out on his journey and a man ran up. Several things going on here. First of all, this man ran up to him. Doesn't sound that unusual to any of us here. A lot of you out there are runners. Yesterday I went and washed the car and washed the truck and come through the neighborhood, uh, and I had to slow down several times. People are out running. It's very common to go out running. Dr. Collard Smith is our new resident runner. He just runs all the time. I think he ran 10,000 miles last year. He ran or something like that. So it's very common. It doesn't, you, you read that and you kind of walk by it, but if you are a Jewish man, you didn't run boys ran men didn't and especially if you were a young man of prestige and it was recognized that you are some sort of ruler you have plenty of money you're rich something is going on in his life that's caused him that's why Matthew said behold he ran not only that you keep looking at it what else did he do verse 20 I mean verse 17 the text says that he knelt the man ran up and knelt before him like a like a supplicant, like a leper. He he knelt there like a beggar. There's there's something that's got a hold of him. He's riddled with some sort of genuine anxiety or, or concern. And it doesn't make sense because he's a rich young ruler. So even after all of his success, after all of his success at an early age, he's empty. And the thing is, we're going to read what he says to Jesus. It's remarkable. This young man believes in God. He believes in heaven. He believes in hell. He believes in justice. He believes in eternity. He believes in judgment. I mean, he's, he's, he's moral. He's humble. He's kind. He's sincere. And not only that, look at the questions. Verse 17, he, he asks the right Question the wrong way. Right question. Here's what he says. Verse 17. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You guys understand this. I'm a doer. What must I do? Put it in front of me. I'll jump it. I'm a fixer. What must I do? There's something nagging back in my soul. I've got all of this money. I'm I'm at a really high position for my age, and something's missing. What do I need to do? I mean, I'm all about self-improvement. Set goals out there. I'll set them for the year, and I'll strive to meet those goals, hoping that will keep me advancing. What must I do? I want to get better. I want to keep achieving. Watching uh, some documentaries last night. My wife is visiting her family in Mississippi, and so when she's gone, <clears throat> I have rain <laughs> in the television, in that one area, in the television, and uh, I get to watch all the documentaries I want, so I'm watching all kind of World War II documentaries, I ran out of those, and I found one um, on NASCAR. I thought, man, I live in NASCAR country, I want to watch some of this, <clears throat> and uh Number one, I didn't realize there was such bad language. I mean there many of you guys were I'm glad Connie wasn't there to hear all of that. And number two, listening to some of those drivers talk about the how everything presses them to achieve those young, rich men here. That that's him. That, bowing before Jesus, he knows something missing, so and I'll achieve. I mean, we've been, if you're a guest, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark since January of 2023. And we've never seen anyone with such promise, such potential, come up and fall down in front of Jesus like this. Normally the Pharisees are coming, they're picking a fight with Jesus or somebody that has a child that's possessed by a demon or somebody that needs healing comes here. This guy, we've never seen anybody like this. I mean, this is such a great guy, but there's something dogging him. There's something that won't let him go. Maybe it's, I mean, we don't know anything about his life. Maybe it's unsatisfied guilt. Maybe, um, maybe he's got some sort of unfulfilled longing. Maybe he just has some really painful doubt about his relationship to God And and he comes to Jesus, he falls down. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 18, Jesus doesn't coddle the young man. He's come up hearing how, how good he is, how much potential he has, how he's going to succeed. You're going to do great things for God. Verse 18, Jesus addresses the root of the problem. And Jesus said to him, "Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone." This is not Jesus saying he's not God. This is not Jesus saying to this man, "You should know who I am." Is that why you called me good? That's not. This is Jesus addressing his perception of reality. And he says to the young man, "You." You've heard that you are good. You don't know what good is. No one is good but God. Jesus calls attention for this young man to his superficial understanding of what good is. We feel that. We, we throw the word around all the time. In fact, it's gotten so common that if I asked you a question you said, good, that's going to be average. I want it to be great, super great, unbelievable. Good has become the new average. We've forgotten how to, forgotten how to use the word good. We might even say about our dog, he's a good dog. Or we might, we might say about a man that just curses all the time, drinks, doesn't come to church. He, he's basically a good guy. He's just been with the wrong crowd. Or you might say about someone, he has a good heart. He just has made really bad decisions. It's a concept of good. And here in in verse 18, in this shockingly short statement, Jesus teaches moral bankruptcy. That only God is good. And your goodness is never going to be good enough. What did he say in Romans chapter 3? Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. He's quoting the Psalms and Isaiah. Romans chapter 3, 10 and 11. Paul says, no one is righteous. Not one. No one understands. No one is seeking for God. Here, verse 18. No one is good but God, young man. Before we can understand the gift of God's grace... We must see the cavernous hole of our need It's what Jesus is doing here. This young man does not he feels it that's why he's asking but he can't identify it. Let's walk through what Jesus Let's walk through what Jesus teaches this humble self-righteous man. Join me there in verse 19 and 20. So here's what he does. Jesus is going to cite. You understand the 10 commandments. The first few commandments have to do with your relationship to God. The next commandments, the other side, the, what is called the second side of the commandments, have to do with our relationship to one another. And so he starts there in verse 19. Jesus cites a number of commandments from the second half of the Ten Commandments that govern how we relate to other people. Verse 19 and 20. Jesus says, You know the commandments. So then he lists off several do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. That's not actually a commandment. It's probably based on do not covet. But do not fraud and honor your father and mother. And the young man, as he's listening, verse 20, the young man says, I've done those. I I grew up, my parents taught me to be respectful. Teacher, I've, I've done all of those. He's a nice guy. If this young man shows up at your house and he wants to date your daughter, you are glad he is there. Number one, he's got a job. He's respectful. He's got money in his pocket. He understands morality. He's using great manners. He's checking all the boxes. And right here, he says to Jesus, this is how I was raised. I've done all of that. It's a a, a striking verse to me. Verse 21, I... uh, it's hard to know what to do with it, but it, it, it's worth looking at it. So let's get the scene. Verse 20 and 21. <clears throat> he said to him, Teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. Verse 21. Jesus looking at him loved him. Man, don't you? I mean, in his sin, he, he's a here is here is Jesus and his compassion to sinners. That young man had not done anything to get the love of Jesus. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Here is his love for sinners. In fact, you, you ought to circle that. He loved him. He loved him so he told him the truth. Let me show what I mean. Verse 21. <clears throat> Jesus looking at him, loved him. And he said to him, you got one thing. You like one thing. Jesus is going after the idol in his heart. You got one thing. You have one thing. And he said to him, you like one thing, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Jesus loved him, verse 21. Looked at him and loved him. So he told him the truth. You have an idol. Now look. Loving someone isn't accepting their sin. We live in a world that this is going to just cut against the grain. The world tells us that in order for us to actually love someone we have to accept the sin they're in. If you don't accept how I'm living you don't love me. That is not the model of Jesus. The model of Jesus is He looked at that young man and loved him and then told him the truth. Wasn't ugly about it. You can you can you can speak the truth in love, and the most loving thing you can do is with humility and kindness and boldness and joy. Speak the truth to those that you love. Jesus says to him, verse twenty one. You lack one thing. The great Presbyterian teacher R.C. Sproul, he says that. <coughs> that He's already covered one part of the Ten Commandments, the second half having to do with relationships. Now Jesus is taking Him to the first tablet of the Ten Commandments. The first tablet that says, You shall have no other gods before Me. This is not Jesus saying that everybody that is rich is going to hell. This is Jesus getting to the heart of the issue. Verse 21, I read it to you, looking at the young man he loved and said to him you like, here, here's what you like, I know what, what your God is, sell it, sell it all and put your treasures where you can't get to them, treasures in heaven where you can't see them, now come and follow. Here's what Jesus does for this young man. <clears throat> Jesus invites him to do something that is completely contrary to to the direction of his whole life it's it's the supreme glorious test drop the crutches and come follow me and it's a stunning thing to the young man right verse verse 22 see it's stunning in fact the text is he's disheartened by it disheartened by the saying he he went away sorrowful. The literally, literally leads reads uh, his face fell. What's interesting? Read the whole Bible. This is the only time in the entire Bible that anybody has come up to Jesus, asked, and walked away disappointed. It's the only time in the whole Bible. He's sorrowful, but not wrecked. Do you know? You can be sad about something and not repentant. He, he's sorrowful. He walked away sad, but he still walked away. And he wanted to keep relying on his own goodness. You see, being good is not good enough. It's a good place to put the gospel, to speak the gospel. When we say gospel, this is what we mean. Because we are not good enough, God in His goodness who created us in his image, the image of God in us, disfigured by our sin. That's the part of us not being good enough, disfigured by our sin. God in his goodness has given us Jesus, who was sinless, who lived perfectly, who, who on this earth earned righteousness. He not only came holy, became, uh, he came to the earth as holy, he also lived as a man perfectly. So at the cross, what he does there. He takes the punishment we deserve and gives us, gives us the righteousness that He has earned. And the gospel says, if you receive what God has given, believing that Jesus did that for you, then you are saved and not dependent on your goodness, but the goodness of Christ. Being good it's not good enough. I'm going to give you a second thing to consider. If that's the case, being good is not good enough. Number two, God's grace is more than enough. God's grace is more than enough. Okay, that was the event. Now let's turn to Jesus teaching on it in verse 23. Verse 23, how hard it is, Jesus says. Jesus looked around. It's funny, he looked at the... uh, rich young ruler and loved him now verse 23 he looked around and he said to his disciples how difficult I wonder if the guy could hear him he's walking off how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God he's not saying those that have wealth are not getting into the kingdom of God how difficult it is for those that do have it are hurdles that money can be a curse it can be a hurdle It, it 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 provides distractions takes your attention away. It makes you feel like you are independent, like you don't actually need that much. It can sometimes dominate your thoughts. How hard it is, Jesus said. In verse 24, Jesus just keeps pounding it. In verse 24, the disciples, they're amazed. They're like, wait a second. Wait, wait. We, we thought that if God blessed you, that means you're doing good, you do good things, God will bless you. The disciples before the cross, the disciples would have been a great prosperity preachers you do good, good things are going to happen. If bad things are happening to you, then you probably are not, something's wrong. And Jesus is like, you, you are not getting it. Verse 24, they are astounded, but Jesus said to them again, let me say it again, how difficult it is, you see. Verse 26, the disciples, I mean, they're, they're dumbstruck. They don't know what to do with that. It doesn't make any sense. And then verse 25, you have the famous metaphor. Don't weaken the metaphor. Verse 25 is the third time Jesus says it. It's a famous metaphor. Uh, used to, you would find in magazines and bad commentaries that uh, the eye of the needle was some gate in Jerusalem that camels had to kneel down to get to the gate. So to get into the kingdom, you have to do it on your knees. That preaches good. It's just not true. Like that never happened. It's about the 10th century. What is Jesus doing with this metaphor? The word picture is so stark. It's showing how impossible. And So he says it is is easier for a camel, the biggest animal, animal in this region, to go through the smallest hole, the eye of a needle, than for a rich man to get into heaven. He's making a point. And verse 26, they were exceedingly stopped. If that's the case, if it's not a quid pro quo, how does it work? Verse 27 is the key. Verse 27 is the key. It's the key to the entire passage. What does he say in verse 27? You're getting it now. Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible. You can't be good enough. That rich young man, the left here, can't be good enough. With man it is impossible, but not with God. Let me turn your attention here. Not with God. For all things, God can get the camel through the eye of the needle. God can save the rich man. For all things are possible with God. You know what this does? This takes away any idea of a works-based salvation and shows that it is God and God alone. He takes away any thought of earning salvation. That you being saved and you being a Christian, it's a gift of God. It is a work of God. It is the grace of God. That only the kindness of God can save you. So how do you how do you get in, how do you get in? How is this young man's? I mean, he's walked away now. How do you get into the kingdom? How do you become a Christian? I'll give you three kind of thoughts on that kingdom of God it is received as a gift this will help you avoid a false gospel the kingdom of God it is received as a gift it is entered through faith it is displayed in your life it is received as a gift that is the grace of God Christ accomplishment accomplished it in his life his death and resurrection he paid for your sins at the cross God raised him from the dead it is worked and you believe so received as a gift it is entered through faith that is where your faith you hear the gospel and how is it appropriated to your life it's when you trust Jesus did that for you how do you know it's real It's that third one it is seen in your life it is displayed in obedience and it reminds us that in Christ in Christ God loves us with impossible grace The event that happened shows us that being good is not good enough. The lessons that Jesus taught show us that God's grace is more than enough. Now the promise. Now the promise. Let me give you a third third thing, the promise. That is that God's provision in your life is always enough. God's provision is always enough. So the disciples heard this. Peter becomes the spokesman as he always does. They've gathered together. And in verse 28, he asked a question. Okay, okay, let me get this right now. We've seen this guy that's got everything. He's walked away. He's not getting in. So let's just kind of, let's do a self-check here. Verse 28, Peter began to say to him, so we have left everything and followed you. Does that count? And look at the promise. Verse 29 and 30, there are few wider promises in all of the Bible than this one. Jesus realizes the cost. He, verse 29, he realizes the cost and he equates himself with the gospel. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, Peter, there is no one who has left, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and the gospel. Jesus is the gospel, my sake and the gospel, who will not receive a hundred times. See what he says, verse 30, here's the promise. Who will not receive a hundredfold, not just in eternity, but in this time, houses. I'm going to take care of you. There's nothing like being in the provision of God, how God has provided for you. When you are his child, God provides for his children, the provision of God. And and the fellowship of believers, when you give your life to Christ and your friends don't understand that and your parents reject that, or you have a child that's wandered off and rejected everything you've taught, and here you stand, what God gives you is the fellowship of believers. Jesus says, here's my promise, a hundred times better than a family. Your family is based on the blood of relatives. The church is based on the blood of Christ, more powerful than any family. It's a hundred times, Jesus says. Not only that, Jesus says that you'll also have persecution it's interesting that mark is the only one who includes this mark is writing for the church at rome and the church at rome is being persecuted and mark reminds them jesus said that part of part of the thrill of serving and following christ is the persecution that comes and with that is the eternal life promise in this passage when jesus makes the promise this passage ends with uh But the principle we've seen in other places, you find Jesus saying this all throughout the Gospels. In verse 31, Jesus says, but many who are first will be last, and the last persecuted. Those who gave up the thing, the last shall be first. Brothers and sisters, there is a greater, more glorious kingdom that awaits all of those Who have put their whole life trust in Jesus Christ because in Christ God loves us with impossible grace. You've been relying on your goodness and your efforts. You come and trust what God has done for you in Christ. You feel like you've committed sins that that are impossible to forgive You hear the grace, the impossible grace of God. Nothing is impossible with God. And you rejoice. You rejoice in the family of believers that God has given you to walk with you, to be your comfort, to be your kin. It is a reminder. God loves us with impossible grace. This morning as we close our time of preaching and go into singing, why don't we take a moment and pray and ask God to help us as we commit our lives to Him. Your heads bowed this morning as we go to to the Lord in a moment of prayer and commitment. When we sing this morning, if you'd like to come and pray or have somebody pray with you, our pastors are here. If you want to talk further about what it means to, to stop the treadmill of trying to please God to earn His affection and start the great life of living free in grace and forgiveness that comes through the righteousness of Christ. If you want to talk about that, our pastors will be here. We'll also be in the lobby after church to talk through what it means to give your life to Christ. Father, thank you for your word that is good, for your grace that is true, for your spirit that heals. We thank you for that. We thank you that you have called us to a family, to a kingdom that is entered by grace through faith. We pray that you'd be close and provide healing and hope and joy. We pray you'd bring the joy of salvation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.